Chapter 15 of The Beetle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Winteroud. The Beetle by Richard Marsh. Chapter 15 Mr. Lessingham Speaks. The house was full. Percy and I went upstairs to the gallery which is theoretically supposed to be reserved for what are called distinguished strangers, those curious animals. Trumperton was up, hammering out those sentences which smell not so much of the lamp as of the dunderhead. Nobody was listening, except the men in the press gallery, where is the brain of the house and ninety percent of its wisdom. It was not till Trumperton had finished that I discovered Lessingham. The tedious ancient resumed his seat amidst a murmur of sounds which, I have no doubt, some of the pressmen interpreted the next day as loud and continued applause. There was movement in the house, possibly expressive of relief. A hum of voices, men came flocking in. Then from the opposition benches there rose a sound which was applause, and I perceived that, on a crossbench close to the gangway, Paul Lessingham was standing up bareheaded. I eyed him critically, as a collector might eye a valuable specimen, or a pathologist a curious subject. During the last four-and-twenty hours, my interest in him had grown apace. Just then, to me, he was the most interesting man the world contained. When I remembered how I had seen him that same morning, a nerveless, terror-stricken wretch, groveling like some craven cur upon the floor, frightened to the verge of imbecility, by a shadow, and less than a shadow, I was confronted by two hypotheses. Either I had exaggerated his condition then, or I exaggerated his condition now. So far as appearance went, it was incredible that this man could be that one. I confess that my feeling rapidly became one of admiration. I loved the fighter. I quickly recognized that here we had him in perfection. There was no seeming about him then. The man was to the manner born. To his fingertips a fighting man. I had never realized it so clearly before. He was coolness itself. He had all his faculties under complete command. While never, for a moment, really exposing himself, he would be swift in perceiving the slightest weakness in his opponent's defense, and so soon as he saw it, like lightning he would slip in a telling blow. Though defeated, he would hardly be disgraced and one might easily believe that their very victories would be so expensive to his assailants that in the end they would actually conduce to his own triumph. Hang me, I told myself, if after all I am surprised if Marjorie does see something in him. For I perceived how a clever and imaginative young woman, seeing him at his best, holding his own like a gallant knight against overwhelming odds, in the list in which he was so much at home, might come to think of him as if he were always and only there, ignoring altogether the kind of man he was when the joust was finished. It did me good to hear him, I do know that, and I could easily imagine the effect he had on one particular auditor who was in the ladies' cage. It was very far from being an oration in the American sense. It had little or nothing of the fire and fury of the French Tribune. It was marked neither by the ponderosity nor the sentiment of the eloquent German. Yet it was as satisfying as are the effects of either of the three, 
producing without doubt precisely the effect which the speaker intended. His voice was clear and calm, not exactly musical, yet distinctly pleasant, and it was so managed that each word he uttered was as audible to every person present as if it had been addressed particularly to him. His sentences were short and crisp. The words which he used were not big ones, but they came from him with an agreeable ease, and he spoke just fast enough to keep one's interest alert without invoking a strain on the attention. He commenced by making, in the quietest and most courteous manner, sarcastic comments on the speeches and methods of Trumperton and his friends which tickled the house amazingly. But he did not make the mistake of pushing his personalities too far. To a speaker of a certain sort, nothing is easier than to sting to madness. If he likes, his every word is barbed. Wounds so given fester, they are not easily forgiven. It is essential to a politician that he should have his firmest friends among the fools, or his climbing days will soon be over. Soon his sarcasms were at an end. He began to exchange them for sweet-sounding phrases. He actually began to say pleasant things to his opponents, apparently to mean them. To put them in a good conceit with themselves, he pointed out how much truth there was in what they said, and then, as if by accident, with what ease and at how little cost amendments might be made. He found their arguments, and took them for his own, and flattered them, whether they would or would not, by showing how firmly they were founded upon fact, and grafted other arguments upon them, which seemed their natural sequel, and transformed them, and drove them hither and thither, and brought them, their own arguments, to a round, irrefragable conclusion, which was diametrically the reverse of that to which they themselves had brought them. And he did it all with an aptness, a readiness, a grace which was incontestable. So that when he sat down, he had performed that most difficult of all feats. He had delivered what, in a house of common sense, was a practical, statesmanlike speech, and yet one which left his hearers in an excellent humor. It was a great success, an immense success, a parliamentary triumph of almost the highest order. Paul Lessingham had been coming on by leaps and bounds. When he resumed his seat, amidst applause which this time really was applause, there were probably few who doubted that he was destined to go farther still. How much farther it is true that time alone could tell, but so far as appearances went, all the prizes which are as the crown and climax of a statesman's career, were well within his reach. For my part I was delighted. I had enjoyed an intellectual exercise, a species of enjoyment not so common as it might be. The apostle had almost persuaded me that the political game was one worth playing, and that its triumphs were things to be desired. It is something, after all, to be able to appeal successfully to the passions and aspirations of your peers to gain their plaudits, to prove your skill at the game you yourself have chosen, to be looked up to and admired, and when a woman's eyes look down on you, and her ears drink in your every word, and her heart beats time with yours, each man to his own temperament, but when that woman is the woman whom you love, to know that your triumph means her glory and her gladness, to me that would be the best part of it all. In that hour, the Apostle's hour, I almost wished that I were a politician, too. The division was over. The business of the night was practically done. I was back again in the lobby, 
the theme of conversation was the apostle's speech. On every side they talked of it. Suddenly Marjorie was at my side. Her face was glowing. I never saw her look more beautiful, or happier. She seemed to be alone. So you have come after all. Wasn't it splendid? Wasn't it magnificent? Isn't it grand to have such great gifts, and use them to such good purpose? Speak, Sidney. Don't feign a coolness which is foreign to your nature. I saw that she was hungry for me to praise the man whom she delighted to honor, but somehow her enthusiasm cooled mine. It was not a bad speech of a kind. Of a kind? How her eyes flashed fire! With what disdain she treated me! What do you mean by of a kind? My dear Sidney, are you not aware that it is an attribute of small minds to attempt to belittle those which are greater? Even if you are conscious of inferiority, it is unwise to show it. Mr. Lessingham's was a great speech of any kind. Your incapacity to recognize the fact simply reveals your lack of the critical faculty. It is fortunate for Mr. Lessingham that there is at least one person in whom the critical faculty is so bountifully developed. Apparently, in your judgment, he who discriminates is lost. I thought she was going to burst into passion, but instead, laughing, she placed her hand upon my shoulder. Poor Sidney, I understand. It is so sad. Do you know you are like a little boy who, when he is beaten, declares that the victor has cheated him? Never mind. As you grow older, you will learn better. She stung me almost beyond bearing. I cared not what I said. You, unless I am mistaken, will learn better before you are older. What do you mean? Before I could have told her, if I had meant to tell, which I did not, Lessingham came up. I hope I have not kept you waiting. I have been delayed longer than I expected. Not at all, though I am quite ready to get away. It's a little tiresome waiting here. This with a mischievous glance towards me. A glance which compelled Lessingham to notice me. You do not often favor us. I don't. I find better employment for my time. You are wrong. It's the cant of the day to underrate the House of Commons, and the work which it performs. Don't you suffer yourself to join in the chorus of simpletons. Your time cannot be better employed than in endeavoring to improve the body politic. I am obliged to you. I hope you are feeling better than when I saw you last. A gleam came into his eyes, fading as quickly as it came. He showed no other sign of comprehension, surprise, or resentment. Thank you. I am very well. Marjorie perceived that I meant more than met the eye, and that what I meant was meant unpleasantly. Come, let us be off. It is Mr. Atherton tonight who is not well. She had just slipped her arm through Lessingham's when her father approached. Old Linden stared at her on the apostle's arm as if he could hardly believe that it was she. I thought you were at the Duchess's. So I have been, Papa, and now I'm here. Here, old Linden began to stutter and stammer, and to grow red in the face, as is his wont when all excited. Why, what do you mean by here? Where, where's the carriage? Where it should be, except waiting for me outside, unless the horses have run away. I, I I'll take you down to it. I, I don't approve of your, your w waiting in a place like this. Thank you, Papa, but Mr. Lessingham is going to take me down.
I shall see you afterwards. Goodbye. Anything cooler than the way in which she walked off, I do not think I ever saw. This is the age of feminine advancement. Young women think nothing of twisting their mothers round their fingers, let alone their fathers. But the fashion in which that young woman walked off on the apostle's arm and left her father standing there was, in its way, a study. Lyndon seemed scarcely able to realize that the pair of them had gone. Even after they had disappeared in the crowd, he stood staring after them, growing redder and redder, till the veins stood out upon his face, and I thought that an apoplectic seizure threatened. Then, with a gasp, he turned to me. "'Damned scoundrel!' I took it for granted that he alluded to the gentleman, even though his following words hardly suggested it. "'Only this morning I forbade her to have anything to do with him, and now he's walked off with her. Con confounded adventurer! That's what he is, an adventurer, and before many hours have passed I'll take the liberty to tell him so.' Jamming his fists into his pockets, and puffing like a grampus in distress, he took himself away, and it was time he did, for his words were as audible as they were pointed, and already people were wondering what the matter was. Woodville came up as Lyndon was going, just as sorely distressed as ever. "'She went away with Lessingham. Did you see her?' "'Of course I saw her. When a man makes a speech like Lessingham's, any girl would go away with him and be proud to.' When you are endowed with such great powers as he is, and use them for such lofty purposes, she'll walk away with you, but till then, never. He was at his old trick of polishing his eyeglass. It's bitter hard. When I knew that she was here, I'd half a mind to make a speech myself, upon my word I had, only I didn't know what to speak about, and I can't speak anyhow. How can a fellow speak when he's shoved in the gallery? As you say, how can he? He can't stand on the railing and shout, even with a friend holding him behind. I know I shall speak one day, bound to, and then she won't be there. It'll be better for you if she isn't. Think so? Perhaps you're right. I'd be safe to make a mess of it, and then, if she were to see me at it, it'd be the devil. Pon my word, I've been wishing lately I was clever." He rubbed his nose with the rim of his eyeglass, looking the most comically disconsolate figure. "'Put black care behind you, Percy. Buck up, my boy. The division's over. You are free. Now we'll go on the fly.' And we did go on the fly. End of chapter 15 Recording by Alan Winteroud BoomCoach.blogspot.com